We are um, we're working our way through the whole book of Acts, of course, but we're in chapter three, and this is what I'm identifying as the second great evangelism moment or gospel opportunity in the book of Acts. Uh, the first one, of course, was the day of Pentecost, where the Lord used the filling of the entire group of 120 true disciples with the Holy Spirit as a way to stir up the community in Jerusalem that was surrounding that upper room. And it, it uh, turned into an opportunity for a gospel proclamation. Peter stepped into that opportunity and proclaimed the powerful message that he did back in chapter two. Uh, this is a similar one. The circumstance is a little bit different. Uh, here, the Lord uses a different kind of miracle, the miracle of the healing of a man who was lame from birth, who had been laying at and begging at the, the beautiful gate entry point to the temple and its precincts. And um, as Peter and John were heading into a prayer time there at the temple, uh, they encountered the man. The Lord used them to um, miraculously heal the man. Uh, he leapt up. He was immediately made whole, both his feet and ankles. And walking and leaping and praising God, he entered into the temple with them, went through that prayer meeting, came back out with Peter and John. They've now gone to the eastern side of the temple, uh, a covered porch area, huge covered area called Solomon's Portico, where uh, meetings often took place with a, um, of course, with a, a spiritual emphasis. And Peter is now going to use the crowd that has rushed together uh, to find out what's the story behind this man being miraculously healed because for some 40 years of time he had been at this beautiful gate, was well known in the city. And so his healing is a testimony and one that cannot be disregarded or ignored. And so Peter uh, takes the opportunity, like he did on the day of Pentecost, he steps up and he begins to proclaim a gospel message. And what we're focused on is we're working through this message. It's a long one, so we've, we've broken it up into three segments. We've accomplished one of those three. Today we'll take the middle section. But what we're, what we're looking at is both what did Peter focus on in his gospel proclamation? And we're trying to compare that a little bit as we go along to uh, what I would call typical gospel proclamations in modern Christianity. And just to see if there's any distinctions or differences, maybe something we can learn. Of course there is, but something we can learn that would reshape our own way of representing the gospel to an unbelieving world. And then we're also paying attention to what he doesn't focus on. And uh, for today, I'll just read the portion that we've already covered, and I'll include the portion that we're going to focus on today. For today, we're going to be focused on verses 17 through 21, but I'll start reading in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 21 and leave off just the last portion of the message. Lord willing, we'll cover that next Sunday. So Acts 3.11, <clears throat> while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of, Jacob, uh, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one 
and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. All right, so for our focus today, we're going to start with verse 17. And what Peter has just done in the verses just preceding verse 17 is he has really honed in on the hearts of the crowd that is listening to him. We need to remember that just a few days before this, you know, it's maybe, maybe two months, a month and a half before this, uh, what's happened was Jesus had on that great day entered the city of Jerusalem and had been acclaimed by almost the entire city as this is, this is the Messiah promised to us by the Old Testament scriptures. And then later that same week, under the influence of a religious leadership in the city of Jerusalem that was hateful toward him and was willing to do virtually anything to undermine his reputation and his ministry, and if possible, even take him out of the way. And we saw in our Matthew study as they went so far as to conspire to kill him, they, the, the leadership of the city convinced the crowd that he was a false prophet and no one to be followed and someone deserving of judgment and someone deserving of execution by the Roman authorities. And so on that day when he was arrested and then brought by Pilate before the crowd, that crowd had cried out and said, uh, we don't recognize this man as the true Messiah. In fact, we have no king except Caesar. And so now what Peter has done in the first portion of the message is he's honed in on their hearts to bring conviction to their hearts for three things. They had denied the Lord Jesus. They had um, they had called for his death and um, they had delivered him, of course, over to the Roman authorities for that purpose. And so here, what Peter does now is he shifts gears a little bit. He's been, he's been emphasizing conviction of their hearts because he recognizes unless they acknowledge their sin and the part that they played, even though they were under the influence of deceivers, Nevertheless, they were still responsible for their actions and for their choices. But here in verse 17, he begins to shift to make the crowd to understand that God is not reacting to what they have done to God's son in the same way that you and I might react if someone did it to our son. Verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also 
your rulers. I think it's important to keep in context what I've just described, which is he's speaking about their motivation and why they did what they did and how they did it. But what they did was they, they, according to Peter's own testimony, they killed the Son of God. Now, I want you to just, I just want you to put it in the context of your own circumstance and your own life for a moment and think about the implications of how you might respond in such a circumstance. The Lord forbid that this ever happened to you, but I want you to imagine for a moment some evil crowd of people has murdered your own son. Someone that you gave birth to, someone that you raised, someone that you fed, someone that you cared for, someone that you loved, that you clothed, you housed, you formed a deep and connected bond with, and some crowd of people has come along and murdered your son. And now you have the opportunity to speak to that same crowd. Would your heart be where Peter's heart was in verse 17 as he is speaking on behalf of the the Father God and representing his heart to the crowd. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. This is a super merciful and gracious shifting of gears here in the midst of this message. Yes, he first worked on convicting their hearts, but now he is working on drawing them to the Lord through this proclamation that he's making. You acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, which is really the most surprising thing to me about this. Not just the crowd acted in ignorance. There was, it was somewhat understandable because they were under the deceptive influence of the religious rulers of the city. But even the rulers themselves, Peter grants this space to them to say, even your rulers were acting in ignorance. Now, what does that mean? We, we understand what the word ignorance means. It simply means not knowing, not having all the information necessary to, to see something clearly and to understand something in the way that you should. An ignorant person is a person that doesn't have all the information at their disposal. And Peter is saying, you didn't have all the information you needed. And as a result... God is not going to treat you in the same way that he would treat you. That's the implication of what he's saying here. He's not going to treat you in the same way as he would treat you if you did know clearly who it was that you were calling for their execution and you would be treated differently if you had done it in that way. It's really a, it's a, it's an offer of what I can only call, um, a gracious second chance. Now, in terms of uh, in terms of believing the truth in a saving way, we know and understand that God, once a person breathes his last breath in this world, their heart beats one last time, their chances are finished, and there is no more opportunity for their hearts to turn. But until someone breathes their last breath, there is a gracious and merciful provision of the Lord and a, and a disposition of his heart, of the Lord's heart toward them to give the opportunity to turn before it's too late and to embrace the truth 
and to be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. And so what Peter does here is he does not, and this is an important distinction, he does not absolve them of their responsibility because they're ignorant. He doesn't say, look, you guys were ignorant and so God is just going to ignore your sin and pretend that you haven't done what you did toward his son, that you haven't denied him, that you didn't deliver him over to the authority, that you didn't call for his execution and by your call actually influence Pilate to make the decision to crucify Christ because all of that was absolutely true and they were all absolutely responsible for that. But though he's not absolving them of their sin, he is essentially proclaiming that their ignorance is a modifying factor in how God is presently dealing with them. So they called for the execution of the Son of God and were responsible for it. And as those who held responsibility for the execution of the Holy One, the author of life, the righteous one, what did they deserve on this day from God? If God was going to give them anything according to what they deserved, what would they receive from God? Judgment and the death penalty. This is in the law of Moses. It's God's own holy and righteous standard. You murder someone and you are then going to be executed under the standards of God's law. This is God's righteous and holy standard. But what he's saying is, though you deserve death, there's a, there's a modifying factor in this circumstance. And so God, rather than executing you today as you deserve, God is going to give you a gracious second opportunity to turn, to embrace the truth, and to be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. Now, in verse 18, Peter immediately focuses their attention on the same thing that he did back in the day of Pentecost message, and that is he focuses their attention on the significance of Old Testament Bible prophecy about the Messiah. He says in verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. All right, so this is an important element in evangelism, but I want us to notice the context because it will be a little bit different later in the book of Acts. Here, the people that Peter is speaking to are a people that are familiar. They're not, they're not holding perfect knowledge and they're not holding perfect understanding but they are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so the very avenue that Peter chooses as the most powerful way to reach their heart's perspective is he goes, he takes them to the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't do so by what we would call chapter and verse. Notice in verse 18, there's no specific Bible reference given to the crowd that day. He doesn't say, just as you know in Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 22, or just as you know in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Well, one reason is they didn't have chapter and verse in those days, right? It wasn't part of the scrolls of the scripture. But he could have said, as you know in the Psalms, this is what David said about the suffering of God's chosen one, the Messiah. Or as you know in the prophecy of Isaiah, 
He doesn't even reference Psalms or Isaiah. What does he do? He gives kind of an overview of the significance of one particular focus in Old Testament Bible prophecy, and that is that the chosen one of God, the Messiah, when his moment in history would arrive, would have to, among the other things that God would accomplish through the Messiah, the Messiah would have to endure suffering. And a particular kind of suffering, a suffering so great that it would take him through the experience of death itself. Now, it was also prophesied that God would not leave him in the circumstance of death. It was prophesied that God would raise him from the dead. But here the emphasis is not so much on the resurrection. He's going to mention that in just a moment, but he wants their hearts to be impacted with God knew all of what has happened in these recent days and he didn't just know it, he revealed it to us as his people by foretelling it. Now foretelling is simply speaking the future events in the past, meaning as God chose at key moments throughout Old Testament history, he called to himself specific individuals, he appointed them as special messengers for himself, Peter identifies them, and we understand them to be the prophets of the Old Testament. And here he just lumps all of the prophets into one category. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Now, does this mean that every Old Testament prophet spoke about the suffering of the Christ? And the answer is no, not all Old Testament prophets did. But the point is, the message about the suffering of the Messiah is consistent with the combined messages of all of the Old Testament prophets. And then for the specific focal point, we have to go to those particular prophets. Now, I mentioned two passages earlier, and if you're taking notes, I would want you to get those in your notes. These are not the two passages I'm going to give you, these are not the only two places in the Old Testament where the suffering of the Messiah was foretold by God through the mouth of the prophets, but these are the two most important ones, and by far, they're the two most detailed ones. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18, which is primarily, there are some other elements in it, but primarily a detailed description of the actual events of the suffering of the Messiah. Things like that he would be whipped in the way that he was whipped, the way that he would be pierced in the way that he was pierced. The experiences that the Messiah actually had on the cross. Then the second portion, and just for the sake of time, we won't go back and read the Psalm passage, but the second portion I referenced last week and I'd like to read it this week. So if you would turn with me back to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter, it starts in chapter 52 of Isaiah. Probably the single most important Old Testament messianic suffering passage. Because this passage is a little bit different than the Psalm 22 passage. Psalm 22 is focused more on the actual circumstances of his suffering. And Isaiah 52 and 53 is focused more on the meaning of his suffering, explaining why it is he had to suffer. So let's read, and I I just want to read through this whole section. I know you're familiar with it. I know you've read it before. 
But keep in mind, this is one of the passages that Peter clearly has in mind and heart when he's referring to all of the Old Testament prophets foretold these things. And later, in the books that Peter wrote, he re-references this Isaiah passage. He was clearly focused on it. So starting in verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant, this is God the Father speaking about his son as his special and appointed servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Basically, the Lord here is starting his story of the Messiah's mission by referring to the end, the goal of his mission, which is his ultimate ascension, exaltation, and enthronement in heaven itself after his suffering. But verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, meaning he was so beat up, he was so whipped, he was so abused by his captors that it was hard to even recognize that it was a human being standing there. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind Saul, and here is where he begins to shift to explaining the, the, the why behind the suffering. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had, and this is all, all describing Christ, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That verse in particular Peter later quotes in one of the letters that he wrote all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, this is you and I now, to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, which, of course, he did even on the cross as they were crucifying him. All right, back to Acts now. Back to verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, just as a reminder, Isaiah wrote those words by the inspiration of the Spirit of God as the Spirit moved upon his heart. But he wrote them some 700 years before those events actually transpired. I mean, think about that. We're in the year 2000. And 23. Can you imagine if the Lord were to speak something to us as his people today and say, this is going to happen, and then it actually is fulfilled in the year 2723? I mean, that'd be a stretch for us, right? Waiting 700 years for the fulfillment of something to happen? Wouldn't it? (laughs) It'd be a bit of a stretch. And yet that's exactly how the Lord chose to make this known, showing us from early in God's unfolding redemption purposes for his people that this was always the plan. This was always the saving plan of God through his son. And of course, it called for the people of God to wait in faith and to trust the Lord and to wait for his perfect timing for the fulfillment of these things. But God foretold them, and then Peter emphasizes this, something we should always emphasize whenever we're speaking either to ourselves or to someone else about Old Testament prophecies of the future. What God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So the big thing here is that we're meant to understand through the proclamation and perspective of Peter that the Old Testament is what we can rightly call a time of anticipation. And it was a long time of anticipation. It was more than 700 years. But waiting for the fulfillment of the great event that would change all of history, the entrance of God the Son into a human's form and nature, taking upon himself human nature and then fulfilling the plan of salvation that required his suffering unto death. But what he had foretold, Peter is declaring, he has now fulfilled. Christ is the fulfillment point so that we are no longer living in a time of anticipation. We are from that point of his death on the cross forward, living in a time of fulfillment of all that God had foretold. And I've talked about this many times before. What is God's track record in terms of Bible prophecy? Saying to 
his people, these are the events that are going to happen in the future. Does he have like, you know, is God a, a really good guesser? And, you know, maybe he's 95% accurate. And then, you know, there's things happen in history and there's some wiggle room and maybe 5% of these things will never be fulfilled in the way that God said they would be fulfilled. His track record has been up until now and will always be because there still are a few prophecies of events that have not yet been fulfilled in history. For instance, prophecies of the second coming of Christ as we're going to see as Peter moves on in his message on that day and focuses our attention on that great event. The second coming of Christ has not yet taken place. But everything prior to that has been fulfilled in a 100% accuracy track record. And what that should tell me, what that should tell you, and all who listen uh, to God's word in order to be taught by it, is that God is how much in charge and in control of the events of world history. So much so that 700 years before things ever happen, he can give you detailed descriptions of what will happen because he has ordained that it will. That gives me ultimate comfort, not just the comfort that I find in my salvation, but the comfort that I need whenever I am passing through circumstances that surround me that make me a little bit uncertain about my standing in this world. I remind myself that God is 100% in charge and nothing will end up happening outside the parameters of what God has ordained and what God has foretold. And so God has thus fulfilled what he proclaimed. I'll remind us, uh, Luke wrote this portion along with the book of Acts, of course. I'll remind us from this couple of verses in Luke 24, as Jesus himself referred to God's fulfillment of these things. In Luke 24, this is a, one of the resurrection appearances of the Lord to his disciples. Not all of them, but... Um, those that were there with him that day and we're reading from verse 45 of Luke 24 actually I'll read verse uh, 44 also then he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you meaning before he went to the cross and before he rose from the dead that everything written about me everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it is written that the christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead what is jesus saying here he's saying this after the fact he's just reminding them of the principle that if god said it it will be fulfilled but he's now saying it with the one thousand percent confidence for their sake that look you see me in my resurrected form here i am the proof of the absolute faithfulness of god to fulfill his promised and prophesied word and so he has thus fulfilled everything that he said needed to be fulfilled regarding the messiah in order to accomplish the plan of salvation that brings us up to the next verse, which is 19. And here is the big shift in Peter's message. It's a shift that needs to take place 
at some point, whenever you are sharing the saving gospel message with someone or some group of people that have not yet embraced it, not yet believed it, and not yet been transformed by it. There's, you can share many, many things with unbelievers, but if you're going to bring them to the point, by the grace of God always, not by your own power, not by your own intelligence, not by your own eloquence, but if you bring them by the grace of God to the point of this is the determining factor in whether you're now going to be saved based on the information you've just heard, this next single word that Peter focuses their heart's attention on is the maker or the breaker of what will happen to them from this point forward. Verse 19, repent. And of course, he adds another important word to it. Repent, therefore. Therefore is a word which connects what he's now saying to what he's just been talking about. He's just been talking about God foretelling critically important information about history in advance super critically important information about his son and the suffering he would need to endure in order to accomplish our salvation but then he concludes that proclamation of what christ is fulfilled by saying repent therefore meaning because of what god foretold you're responsible and because of what god fulfilled about what he foretold you are now doubly responsible And there's only one righteous response to the responsibility that lies upon their souls. The responsibility is you need to do something with this information that's been proclaimed to you. Now that you know it, you're responsible to do something right with it. And the only right thing to do with it is to repent. Now this is This is a word I think you're all familiar with it, but let me just redefine it to make sure we're all on the same track, on the same page as Peter. To repent means to change your perspective, to change your mind, and to change your attitude. Now, you can repent about all kinds of different things, but here the focus is on repent based upon learning that God foretold that the Messiah would suffer in order to accomplish salvation and that he had to suffer in order for the plan of salvation to be fulfilled and to be accomplished. And now he has fulfilled that in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that in the way that you should, you must now change your perspective, change your mind about that, and change your attitude about that. And then that change of mind will lead you to new decisions and new actions and he links one more term with it repent therefore and turn back turn back turn back implies something doesn't it turn back implies that you're already heading in a direction it just happens to be the wrong direction in life you know it's like if you're you've heard these kind of analogies they're good analogies you know if you encounter a circumstance where the the bridge is out and you're on the road and you're trying to flag down cars that are heading for the bridge and if they notice you flagging them down and they respond appropriately to your effort to flag them down what are you going to accomplish for their sake you're going to save their life 
But if they ignore your effort to flag them down and they drive right past you waving at them and just casually keep driving over that bridge that's out, at a certain point, they're going to drive right off the edge of the bridge and plunge to their own destruction. Turn back means you are, you thought this was a good and safe road for you to travel, but it wasn't. You're on the wrong road, or if you're on the right road, you're traveling the wrong way on the right road. And the only salvation is going to be discovered as you turn your vehicle around and start heading the opposite direction. So repent, change your mind about your trip that you're on. Your trip here happens to be your life experience, the story of your life. Change your mind about what you're doing and where you're heading and turn back, these words are implied, before it's too late. This is a moment of mercy. This is a moment of grace. This is a moment of an opportunity to be saved from plunging off the cliff or off the bridge. Turn back. And I think we need to add this concept. It's a, it's a call by the preacher in this case, Peter, for radical life reorientation. You have to you have to turn completely around and go the other way. If you're heading toward the bridge, it's not going to help to just, okay, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just kind of keep going in the same direction, but I'll drive a few degrees to the right or a few degrees to the left. Those are both going to lead you to destruction also. The only way you're going to be saved in this circumstance is to stop the vehicle and turn around completely. Now, at this point, the Lord knows the way we are geared and he understands that we often need motivators for big and important life decisions and there is no bigger life decision you'll ever make than the decision to turn around to repent and to turn back before you're spiritually destroyed and actually destroyed in in eternity to come and so what peter does representing the lord here is he gives them some motivators. There's nothing wrong when when you're sharing the gospel with someone that has not yet embraced it with giving them some understanding of what's waiting for them on the other side of their decision to repent and to turn. What's waiting for them is what? Life compared to destruction and death. And what kind of life is being represented by that decision to turn. A better life is waiting for them. And that should motivate people. I, I don't know what your experience was. The day I was saved in February of 1979 was just prior to being saved the worst 24 hours of my entire life. It was, I don't want to bore you with the the details of why it was so bad but it was bad and I was aware of how bad it was and I had in my mind there's no escape I'm locked into my life is ruined I don't know what I'm going to do now I'm devastated and here I sit in my just stewing in my devastation 
and the Lord did graciously grant me the grace to change my mind, change my perspective, change my attitude, and to turn my life around. And when I turned my life around, my life dramatically improved. I don't mean I was poor and therefore I got rich afterwards. I don't mean I was sick and I got healthy. I'm not talking about external things, although the Lord has blessed me in some of those ways as well, just because he's that gracious toward us. But my life dramatically improved from the inside out. My soul was saved. My soul went from devastation to exaltation in the goodness of the Lord. So he links three motivators, Peter does, for the crowd's sake. And they're identified by a single word that's repeated three times, and it's the word that. Let's reread that section, starting in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Number one, that your sins may be blotted out. Number two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Number three, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Three motivating, gracious, and wonderful, what Peter later describes in one of his letters as magnificent promises. But these are what I want you to clearly understand as conditional promises. Now, this is, a, this is an issue in modern gospel proclamation that we need to be aware of. It is a very popular thing in church circles, Christian circles, even evangelism circles, to portray God's love and God's blessings that flow from his love to an unbelieving world as expressions of God's unconditional love. Now there's a reason why, and the motivator in doing that is a good motivator in the hearts of believers. And that is, they understand that if God ever blesses you, it's not because you deserved it, and it's not because you earned it. So in that sense, any blessing you ever experience in life from the Lord, even as a believer, is unconditional in the sense that God didn't say, okay, I want you to do this first, and then when you've done that, you will have earned my blessing and the experience of my love, and so I'll give you what you deserve because you've now earned it. So in that sense, it's true that God's love is and his blessings are unconditional, but in the sense of what Peter is doing here, it misses the point entirely because what Peter does when he brings the crowd to that key moment, you're either going to turn based on what I proclaim to you or you're not going to turn. And then he begins to describe three great blessings that are available for them to experience, but he makes them conditional upon their response. There's a a response required in order to experience the three things that he's about to describe. And what is that response? Repent and turn. If you don't repent and turn, I don't care what your desire is, you're still heading off the end of the bridge. And you will be destroyed when you fall off that bridge. So he links the experience of these great blessings to their turning back the way they should be going. What's the first blessing? 
And these are all three connected to repenting and turning. That your sins may be blotted out. Back in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, David described the tremendous blessing of knowing that your sins, not just, not just the ones you committed in the last day or so, but the whole record of all the sins you've ever committed in your entire life are now blotted out in the Lord's perspective. And what a deep and enduring and tremendous blessing that actually is. And the, the concept here is that God, the, the background concept, it's a true concept, it's a heavenly, heavenly reality and it's a true biblical principle. God keeps records on everybody. And he doesn't, he's not a, a, a shoddy record keeper. Once years ago, I worked for a small business. It was a, uh, it was a store. And I used to be like a person doing the stocking on the shelves and doing some retail help with the customers and stuff. And the person that was, it was just a small store. The person that was doing the bookkeeping, they they had to let that go and they left the employment of the store. And the owner of the store was just, I, I need a bookkeeper and I don't know, I guess I looked smart and they came to me and they said, I think you could do the books. I said, okay, you know, you're paying me one way or the other. I don't mind doing the books. So for the next six months I did the books and I pretty much almost ruined that entire store. <laughs> I almost t- caused the whole store to crash and burn. I was a terrible bookkeeper terrible bookkeeper not because I can't add two and two and equal you know come up with four I actually do math pretty well in my head you know at least basic math but I I just wasn't paying attention to all the details that I should have been paying attention to so some some things I would I would record and some things I wouldn't and as a result the store nearly went under so what kind of a bookkeeper is God I mean, he has been aware from the moment you drew your first breath in this world of how you've lived your life. The choices you've made, the words that you've spoken, the, the behaviors, the deeds, the attitudes, all of it. Even your secret thoughts that no one else can see and is aware of. He's aware of all of it and he records all of it in his book. And we're accountable to any of those that fall short of his holy and righteous standards as revealed in his law. So how much is in the book? It's just so much. So much. It's overwhelming. I mean, just one day's worth is enough. And for me now, it's up to 68, almost 68 years of, of years of bad behavior. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, you know, there's good behavior mixed in there now because of God's sanctifying work in my life. But it doesn't mean that I only ever think the right thing and only ever speak the right thing and only ever do the right thing. And before I knew the Lord, it pretty much was only the wrong stuff. And so what Peter promises to the crowd is, if you will repent and if you will turn back, This is a blessing that God will pour out upon your life, that your sins may be blotted out. And it literally describes taking like a, 
taking like a, a, a moistened cloth and just rubbing off what's been written so that it's not even there anymore. In the, in the ancient world, the inks that they used for rec- record keeping uh, weren't quite the same as our modern day inks. They, don't, they didn't soak in in the same way to the paper. If you write something in pen, you can smudge it with a, a wet cloth and it's, it's, you're going to smudge it a little bit. It'll still be there. In the ancient world, for the record keeping, you could literally erase what had previously been written. And that's what Peter is promising his listeners. And he's not going beyond what God is offering. He is representing perfectly what God is offering to them. The experience of standing before the Lord with nothing negative on your record whatsoever. Not because you've somehow earned it or deserved it, but because Christ suffered already for it. And if you will repent and turn and embrace that truth, you will experience the clearing of your record. What we call um, your record being expunged, completely cleansed. Second promise. If you will repent, if you will turn around, you will experience times of refreshing that may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. Now, um, Bible scholars debate the meaning of this. This one and the next one are both a little bit debated among Bible scholars. This second one, some people believe, some, some teachers believe that he's referring to things that will only be experienced after the second coming of Christ. And it's understandable that they may think that because the third one specifically does talk about the second coming of Christ. But I, I don't think that's what he means, and I'm going to go with the group of scholars that believes that, that he's talking about experiences in this present life before your life comes to an end or the Lord returns. And I have experienced this, and there's no better way that I could explain it and describe it. And that is having the experience of the Lord forgiving my sins and cleansing me of all unrighteousness and then experiencing what can rightly be described as a time of refreshing having been restored to right relationship with the Lord. And this times of refreshing, it's a word picture that described during the certain part of the heat of the day after just at the end of the heat of the day when cool, refreshing breezes would blow through and just kind of give you relief from what the day had done to your experience. There are times when the Lord simply refreshes your soul because you're in right relationship with him. The church has experienced this corporately at different incredibly critical and important times in church history. We call these times of revival where it's not just you being refreshed, but an entire church being refreshed or an entire group of believers in various locations being refreshed simultaneously. But I want you to really hone in and emphasize for your own heart's understanding your personal refreshment that is periodically needed. The Lord knows you need it. And usually you're not refreshed because there's some area between you and the Lord that's not as right as it should be. And when you handle your business with the Lord and own up to what you need to own up to and are once again right with him, the Lord is just that gracious and that merciful to refresh your soul exactly when and how 
you need to be refreshed. The third promise also connected to that starts in verse, right, right in the middle of verse 20. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about sending Jesus, but God the Father had already sent Jesus in order to accomplish the plan of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God God the Father sent his son to this world to be born as a human being in order to, to grow up and live a perfectly righteous life, to be the only one who could qualify as Savior, and then to sacrificially offer himself for us on the cross. He already sent him to accomplish that. Clearly, he's talking now about what we identify as the second coming of Christ. But it's an interesting link. He's linking our repentance and our turning from our sin to the event of the second coming of Christ. Now later, and I, I won't take us there, we've studied this in detail. It's been a, maybe you know a few years in our home church studies, we went through the books of Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, uh, maybe five years ago or so. And in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, he makes a similar kind of link. That God is, is waiting to send his son so that, that his purpose is accomplished before he sends his son. And his purpose is that every single soul that he is appointed to ultimately be saved will actually repent and be saved. And when that final soul, the implication is when that final soul that he has ordained for salvation is saved, then the Son of God can come. And we don't know the timing of that. I've given you a couple of passages. We won't read them. But Matthew 24, 36, Acts 1, verse 7, we've studied these recently. They should be familiar to you. Only God the Father is in charge of the timing of when his Son returns. But I want us to see the link between our repentance and the return of his son. And then he adds a, an additional bit of detail here in verse 21, our final verse, about the second coming of Christ and what Christ is currently engaged in doing in heaven. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Here, a second time in this message, right back to back, Peter is taking them back to Old Testament Bible prophecy. And he's talking about one specific part of Bible prophecy now. Not here about the suffering of the Messiah, but about the grand finale of history as we know it in the second coming return of the Messiah. No longer in humility, no longer for suffering, but in his second coming in glory and triumphant. Now, for the sake of um, just a specific passage, not the only one that speaks of this, we won't turn there and read it, but Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 through 24 which speaks about before it ever has happened. And again, that was 700 years before the first coming of Christ, and we're up to now 2,700 years, because we're some 2,000 years after the coming, the first coming of Christ. At least so far, 2,700 years we're waiting for the event of the second coming. Does that mean it might not happen now because it's been so long? Well, 
It was 700 years before Christ came and fulfilled what Isaiah spoke about. And if it's 27 years or 2,000, you know, or uh, 200,000 and 700 years, it doesn't matter what God has spoken and foretold through the mouth of his holy prophets. He will fulfill, but the timing is in his hands. And what that Isaiah passage is speaking about, Peter later describes it in greater detail in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. He's speaking about the great and final transformation of this universe in which we live in the event of the second coming. Jesus is not going to come back to this world and simply take out a spiritual broom and dustpan and clean up a little bit of the mess that human beings have made in all the thousands of years since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. He is going to transform everything and he is going to restore everything to an even greater condition than it was before the first sin was ever committed. A condition that Peter describes as a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwell righteousness, meaning a new creation that is so pristine and so filled with God's glory that sin cannot even exist in that new creation that's to come. All of that will be accomplished in the events of the second coming. But Peter emphasizes that until that happens, Jesus is going to remain in heaven. He's going to remain seated upon the throne. He's going to continue to rule over his kingdom until every enemy ultimately bows their knee and those that refuse will face the consequences of driving off that bridge having not turned around in the way that they should. All right, let's just talk for a moment before we sing our last song of worship this morning about application points for you to remember today. First, trust in the faithfulness of God to fulfill all that he has promised. So the focus in Peter's message was was prophecies about the Messiah, both his first coming and the suffering that his coming would lead to. And and then secondarily, he's talking about the second coming. Um, So our confidence now is based upon the track record of his fulfillment in all of the promises that have been fulfilled and taking that confidence and applying it in faith toward the future and the events that have not yet been fulfilled that our eyes have not yet seen and we have not yet experienced. How faithful is God? What's his track record? How 100% can you trust in that? Second, I'm, I'm going to assume, it's not necessarily... Uh, an accurate assumption, but I'm going to assume every single one of you has already received a good and true proclamation of the gospel message. Every single one of you has repented and believed and been saved. But even if you have this principle and the emphasis on repentance and the blessings that can only be experienced after repentance is true and real in your heart is applying to our lives as we walk with the Lord today. That is, we still sin. And when you sin, there's only one right response. There's only ever one right response. And that is to acknowledge your sin, take responsibility for it, own up to it before the Lord, and to repent and to turn around. And when you do, you can be confident that the Lord will bless you with some time of refreshment after you have been restored to him. That doesn't mean go out and sin so that you can then repent 
so that you can then have more refreshment. It, trust me, it's just better to stay in the times of refreshment than it is to veer off. But if you have veered off, get back on track with him. And then third and finally, wait on the Lord. That's what I'm doing. I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm anticipating the second coming of his son. I'm anticipating the restoration of all things. I'm looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. I want to have a place and a part in that. But I'm waiting. It hasn't happened yet. I look around me in the world and it is going to hell in a handbasket. It is falling apart and it seems to be falling apart more rapidly than it's ever fallen apart before. That may not be true, but that's just what it looks like to me. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting on the return of the Lord. My heart is focused there, not on everything that's happening surrounding me. Let's worship the Lord this morning.